0: And, uh, and and even as JT said moments ago, just to, to be able to gather in this fashion with, with the, the sole purpose, God, of just giving you praise, of, of, of honoring you and lifting up glory to your great name. And so, Lord, as, as we spend this time here and, and we, we seek to worship you in, in our prayers and, and the songs that we sing, the reading of your word and the preaching of your word, God, I pray first and foremost that you be glorified And then secondly, Lord, I I ask that you would stir up our our affections for you, that that your Holy Spirit would move amongst us and that you would convict us where we need it, that you would encourage us uh, where we need that, Lord, that you would teach us from your word this morning. We know and we proclaim that your word is true and we stand upon it. And so, Lord, just be glorified in all that we do here today. Father, hide me behind your cross. Help me to speak only those things which you have for us to say this morning. I cling to Christ, my Savior, and, and seek to only make much of his great name. And I ask it in his name, in your glory, Lord. Amen. Okay, so real quick, uh, I want to give you some, 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 I think, necessary context with Corinth. All right, we're, we're in 1 Corinthians. That is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, all right, which is in Greece. And uh, he's writing to the church in Corinth. We believe this. Th- this is the first letter that we have from Paul in the scriptures. But it is, we believe it, this isn't the first letter that he wrote. Uh, we have references throughout scripture where Paul wrote other letters. Some scholars, I, I, I think it's really safe to say there's at least three. But some scholars say they think there's four. Um, that doesn't matter. But this is, this just to give you a picture, this is Paul going back and forth, relaying communication, information um, in, a, in a very pastoral sense to this church in Corinth. And, and Corinth, uh, as I said, it was it was located in Greece. It was on a stretch of land connecting the, the main upper land of Greece and then really kind of a peninsula area down below. So there was this, this strip of land in between the two and that's where Corinth sat. And and this made the, the crossroads of that area for for sea traffic Right between the, the, the eastern Gulf of Corinth and then the, the western Mediterranean seas. Um, it was it was a it was a buzz with people all of the time. It was it was a, a massive town and its city in its day. Ships would often, as I say, come into port and, and and stay there. It was a Roman colony, which means that that it also practiced Roman law and Roman customs. It would have been incredibly important. It was also at that time, the richest city in Greece. It promoted prosperity and pleasure really above almost anything else. It hosted uh, many different cultures and religions that were all mingled together. And the culture at ancient Corinth was was shaped really by a, a very diverse multicultural population of, of, we know, Greeks, Italians, Jews, people from different parts of Asia Minor, all congregated in this one spot. So it, it was a hub of, of diversity and culture in its day. And in my reading in preparation for this, I saw that some historians suggest that, that there was also a really significant transient population. So just people just funneling through all the time. Just a, a huge transient population of athletes and spectators that would come in for events, for, uh, for, for, for festivals. There were philosophers, there were industrialists and merchants and artists. So try to paint a picture in your mind if you can. This, there is a lot going on in Corinth. There, there is an, a very eclectic mix of, of very rich, diverse cultural practices and, and customs. And the reason I bring all that up is, that as you can probably imagine, this is going to have significant impact on the church in Corinth. This is going to play out in the church in, in really significant ways. And as we see, if you know the the story, if you know the, the the letters from Paul to the church at Corinth, they had very serious problems. I mean, like I, you guys know my story, and I'm not going to go into that. But like, if, and you probably experienced it too. But like, we've been in some churches where you're like, man, this is just not great. Like, some pretty some pretty ugly things are happening. Some pretty messed up things are happening. Like. Um, just And this is totally a joke, but when you said, like, members' meetings, like, that we, we should always have them. They're always good. I leaned over to Cassie, and I'm like, not always. But, like, understand, that's me coming from a really traditional Southern Baptist church where we had business meetings once a month. And it was just like, ah, why are we arguing about what, a, what the color of the carpet should be? Like, I don't know that that ever happened in the church that I grew up in, but that's, my, that's what I'm saying like Corinth was exponentially worse than this. They had very serious problems of division, very serious problems of sexual immorality, just rampant sexual immorality in, in certain people within the church. They, they were practicing social elitism. People were being excluded from the body, from the family. And all of this is in 1 Corinthians. It's chapter one and chapter five. and so, and, and it's all there. They displayed also very serious theological confusion about things like marriage and divorce. They integrated certain pagan practices into their their worship. Their cor- corporate worship was a mess oftentimes, and they also had uh, a misunderstanding of, of the resurrection of Christians. So again, all of this is, is like... That's chapter 7, chapter 8. So I'm, I'm, I'm encouraging you if, you, if you're like, oh, what are you talking about? Go go read the whole letter. At the root of much of this, I want you to understand, this is where I'm, I'm going to draw back from, from what JT shared last week. At the root of, of much of this problem of immorality and idolatry in the church, because they, they were being idolatrous in their worship, it was a lack of... of Appreciation for the holiness that God requires for his children. And understand something, I didn't misspeak, the, the, the holiness that God requires, that we're to strive for, to fight and to toil and to, to, to tarry together, to try to, to grab hold of this holiness that we see in his word. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he's spurring them on to do these things. He writes the letter Paul does because the amount of disunity over these things had become substantial because they were, they were acting and worshipping in idolatrous ways and he's, he's, he's telling them that the amount of, of disunity that you have over these things it, it's, it's, it, can't, it can't continue and so he instructs them to work together for the advancement of the gospel which is what we just said just moments ago He's encouraging them to, to, to bind themselves together as one for the advancement of the gospel, but not just the spreading of the gospel, but for, for the, the gospel to take root in their own hearts so they can weed out these idolatrous things, these ungodly things that they're practicing. He wants them to drop their divisiveness, to build up the faith, to build up the fake faith of the weaker brethren that are in the church with them, to witness effectively to unbelievers This is the church, to live underneath the the grace of God and for that to, to take root in our lives and to change us, to radically change us, church, to no longer be that same old person that we were before. So Paul, he addresses multiple issues. He addresses issues concerning corporate worship, but... One of those things in particular is is what we're going to look at today. And he wants to address how the Corinthians were were using their gatherings around the Lord's table, right? Which is what we have over here on both sides of the stage. The Corinthians were using the the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, as as an opportunity to to make social distinctions between people in, in the church, between rich and the poor. The, the elite and the the lower class, the 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 nobodies, if you will. So so let's go to First Corinthians chapter eleven. We'll we'll start in verse seventeen and read all the way through the chapter. This is the reading of God's word. It says, but in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. <clears throat> so, the New Testament church that we are a part of has, uh, we practice two ordinances or sacraments, if you will. Generally, we refer to them within uh, the Baptist faith as, as ordinances. But those two things are what? Do you know? Baptism and communion. That's right. Both of those things are symbols of our salvation. Neither one of those are salvific in and of themselves. You are not saved because you were baptized. You are not saved because you participate in the Lord's Supper or communion. But both of them absolutely are symbols of our salvation. They are pictures, if you will, of the salvation that we have and are experiencing by the grace of Christ. They are living illustrations, if you will, that teach us what it means to be in Christ. And so today we're going to focus on the meaning and the practice of communion. Right? And and I think if you've been with us for any point of time, you know that we've we've been striving to be much more intentional in the way that that we observe and practice communion. We see this as as something in scripture as instituted by Christ at the last supper that he had with his disciples. He instituted it, he laid it out, he told them this is what it means and do this, do this in remembrance of me. That's, That's what we find in the gospels. However, a lot of scholars believe that that this letter that Paul wrote was, we know that it was written at least before two of the gospels, arguably all of them. So my point is, these are some of the earliest words that we have in the scriptures about communion. And Paul wrote this letter um, to give instructions in in this very thing. And so I asked the question, what is communion? What is the Lord's supper? What is it for? Why do we do it? How important is it? Does it mean this? Does it mean that? So I'm going to read to you a statement that is put forth um, in what is referred to as a, it's the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, But I think that this is is really spot on in in giving just a definition, giving a statement as to what what it is that we're doing when we, we observe this. It says, The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night that he was betrayed. It is to be observed in his churches to the end of the age as a perpetual remembrance and display of the sacrifice of his death. It is given for the confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits of Christ's death, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, and their further engagement in and to all the duties they owe him. The supper is to be a bond and pledge of their communion with Christ, and get this, with each other. So when we properly observe the Lord's Supper, when we proper, properly partake of these elements, we, we are receiving the promises that, that of, of Christ in that. We trust in those promises that Jesus gave. We draw near to him by faith. We, we, we profess, we proclaim that he is Christ, that he is the Messiah. We are, we are blessed as we enter into fellowship with him and with one another. And Paul says this very same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you were just flip back a page, 1 Corinthians 10 16 and 17 says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. But this isn't what we see practiced at Corinth. It's not what they're doing. People are being excluded. People are going hungry. People are get, getting their fill of food. Other people are getting drunk. Paul says when you, when you come together, it's not for the better but for the worse. What you're doing is worse it would it would it's almost as if Paul is saying, this is me reading through the text, but it's almost as if Paul is saying, like, it'd be better if, if you just didn't do it at all. You just you shouldn't partake because of the way that you're doing it. And this is because sin was dividing the church at Corinth. And I want you to hear this, church. Understand something. A healthy church, a healthy church, any church that, that strives to be healthy, a healthy church is marked by truth holiness and unity and that's what we desire more than anything else underneath the banner of Christ is is truth holiness and unity and this was absent at Corinth Corinth was unhealthy because they were marked by the exact opposite they were marked by disunity and and division and disharmony amongst the entire body by all accounts from what we see in the letters there was absolute disunity and Paul supports this in verse 18 of our passage today by saying that he has heard that there, are, there were divisions among you. But then he goes on into verse 19 and says something kind of peculiar. He says, however, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want to point it out. In verse 19, he says, there, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized so really quickly here's all i want to say factions at time i mean they're inevitable it's gonna happen i'm not saying they should i'm saying out of human nature these things tend to happen and paul is saying that but are they not only inevitable they're also i think paul's saying they're useful and even necessary at times because how we react how a person reacts In those moments, we'll reveal what we're made of. Right. So, so if the way we react leads to disunity and disharmony, then that is a really poor testimony of what we're made of. We don't have the gospel rooting out all of the selfishness and the pride and the sin. How we react in those moments reveals what we're made of. So to to put it another way, I think in his providence, God allows, if I could say controversy, so that genuine spiritual quality, the, the genuine spiritual quality of believers would be known. This is not, let me be clear, at all an excuse for us to be divisive for divisiveness sake. We should not be nitpicky about things. We don't have carpet in here, but we shouldn't be arguing about the color of the carpet. Like we shouldn't be, we we shouldn't be having the types of conversations that don't lead to greater unity. But in those times when we have to work through the hard things, because just like any family that you've ever belonged to, you have moments, even in your marriage, where you just don't agree and you just clash and you get upset and you get frustrated. But because of the love and the desire for unity and the desire for peace and the desire for truth. You, you pursued those things together. This is not what Corinth was doing. So let me read verses 20 through 22. This is what they were doing. Paul says, When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal one goes hungry another gets drunk what do you not have houses to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of god and humiliate those who have nothing what shall i say to you shall i commend you in this no i will not so understand something church the the early church shared meals frequently together. <clears throat> Corporately in homes, they, they shared meals frequently and then communion would be taken at the end uh, of the meal. Uh, and, and here it would seem in Corinth, the way it's being practiced is wealthy members would, would gather together. They would take the best seats. They would eat all the food. They would drink all the wine. And those with less... Would oftentimes go without or just wouldn't wouldn't be there. They wouldn't wait on them. By the time they showed up, everything was gone. So there's no question that there was division taking place there. Any division that that doesn't honor the entire fellowship is what we see here. Any division that, that doesn't honor the entire fellowship of the church is not commendable. And Paul makes that clear. He's like, You gotta stop. This isn't good. He tells them that that what they're doing is is not the Lord's Supper. You are not partaking of the Lord's Supper. And he would know because he says in verse 23, I I received this from the Lord and then I delivered it to you. So the Lord's Supper isn't just some man-made invention that we can do willy-nilly any way that we want. All right, and I know if, if you spend any time on social media at all, which I don't recommend, you see fights taking place over how communion should be, take, should be practiced and can, you know, can we substitute these things out for the bread and, and the juice or the wine and how often should we take it and, and can we do it at home or do we need to do it at church? Um, it's not some man-made invention that, that we can just do whatever we want with. Right, If you remember when we were in the series in Exodus and we were walking through the way that the Lord was laying out to Israel, um, especially in regards to the tabernacle, he laid out exactly, worship me like this. Do this. And at times just being very implicit, like, don't do that. Only do this. Going as far as to say with offering incense unto the Lord. He, like, don't even like mix, don't change the ingredients at all. Do it exactly like this. And so, with the Lord's Supper, I, I, I don't think, I'm not going to say that we take that strong and rigid of an approach, but I, I, I want to really stress the fact that this is not just some man made invention. This is not just some thing that we can do however we decide to do. It was instituted by Christ later given to Paul and then th- through divine revelation and then Paul gives it to the church which is the spiritual body of Christ and and that expression that is used in verse 24 it says this is my body it's been interpreted a number of different ways throughout the history of the church Right so so let me let me break this down a little bit. When 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 we come and we observe communion, when we take the cup and the bread, we we declare that this is his body and his blood. All right? This is my body Christ says. Roman Catholics understand that to to be taken absolutely literally, right? it's called transubstantiation they believe that the, the 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 wine and the bread literally become the body and the blood of Jesus and i mean that in the most absolute sense is that literally it has somehow it has become the literal body and blood of christ you have lutherans that believe that the literal body and blood of christ are present they don't literally become that Thing, but they are literally present, physically present with the with the bread and the wine. Anglicans would refer to it as the real presence of Christ with the bread and wine. So they believe somehow, some way, there is a real, literal presence. However, we would say that that the body and blood of Christ are not literally physically present in these elements or literally physically present around them but but very much in a spiritual and symbolic sense. I abs- hear me say this. I absolutely believe 100% that Christ is present when we observe communion, but I also believe that Christ is absolutely 100% always present in our lives. That being said, I don't think the reality of Christ's presence spiritually and symbolically in the communion, it shouldn't be lost on us. We should be very mindful of those things as we practice, as we observe the supper. His presence in communion is is significant because the supper, and and here's really from from here on out what I I really want us to to grasp. It It is a sign and a seal of his redemptive work on behalf of a community of sinful people, right We all agree that the work that Christ did on the cross, that is represented in the supper that we take, we, we know his redemptive work on our behalf of being sinful people, and, and, and this supper that we take, it is a sign and a seal of that. It is a remembrance, it is a memorial. In it, we see the fulfillment of the Passover, right? That Christ is the fulfillment of everything that was symbolized in the Passover. The the Mosaic covenant was, was replaced with the new covenant of grace that Christ ushered in with his sacrificial death. He provided a complete atonement for all of the sins of God's people forever, which is what the Passover was about, it was, it was a memorial of the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, but it was also a required sacrifice for the remission of sins, for forgiveness. And Jesus is saying, I've done all of that. All of that has been fulfilled in, in my life and my death and my resurrection. And this that you do in remembrance of me is a sign and seal of how that has effectually taken place in your life. Not just individually, but corporately as a whole body. Past, present, and future is a a sign of of the remission of our sins. And and that makes the supper both a present and a future grace. It says in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when we partake the Lord's Supper, we're looking back in remembrance We're remembering what he did for us. But it says that you proclaim the Lord's death. We are proclaiming. So we look back in remembrance of what Christ has done, but we also look ahead in anticipation of what is to come. And that's when I say, like, the gospel isn't just us being saved from our sins and now we get to go to heaven. Yes, it is that, but it's so much more. It is still presently working in our lives, and we look ahead in anticipation for what is to come. Church, do we not have hold of the greatest news in the, like, we have a a future hope. We have a home with the creator of everything that we could possibly fathom. That is our future hope. We should delight in that when we take the supper. We should we should rejoice in that and lift up praises to God as a result of that. So yes, it is a remembrance. It is a memorial. It, I am never. You're never going to hear me in any way tell you that we shouldn't during communion remember the sacrifice that Christ did on the cross because that was back then. We should just look forward. No, I'm telling you, it's both. Remember what Christ has done. Remember who you were. But also, now understand who you are in Christ and know where we are going. Look ahead in anticipation for what is to come. I could put it another way to say that it is both a pledge and a promise. Communion is both a pledge and a promise. We receive communion as an act of obedience, right? As as an act of faith, we're commanded to do it. Which is why it holds such a very important and sacred place in the life of the church. All right, we, we, we talk about it. You've heard before in, in, in terminology of like being serious and sacred. That, that we don't want to take it lightly. And so that's why whenever, whenever one comes, as Paul says, to eat the bread or drink of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. They are guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so for this reason, we are called to examine our own hearts so that we don't come and eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. That word examine that we are to examine our own hearts that word examine means to test and approve it is to say as psalm 139 verse 23 and 24 says search me o god and know know my heart try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting so it's it's a it's a gut check it's a heart check Call it what you want. Call it. It's a soul check that we are doing spiritual inventory, if you will, of our own heart, our own lives, our motives. And, and to not do so, Paul says, invites the judgment of God upon us. And I, I believe, hear me, church, I believe he means that Literally. I don't want you to think to yourself, well, you know, that, the, the, the God of the Old Testament, that's the way he dealt with his people. Like if there was sin, if there was rebellion, then he would judge them, right? But, but, but we, we don't have any judgment now. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes and amen, but that doesn't mean that we aren't still held to a, a standard that God requires of us. Be holy as your God is holy. It isn't a suggestion, we, strive, we, can, we know we can't hit that mark, but we still strive and live to do so. So we ought not think that, that God doesn't always interact with us in the same ways that, that, that he has in the past. Because that's not what Paul tells the Corinthians. Verse 30, he says it clearly. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Understand something, church. The, the God of the Old Testament is the same God that we have today. He has not changed. I know that what we see through the covenant, that we are in the covenant of grace, it looks oftentimes in the church very different, and I'm so thankful for that. Praise God for that, that we live under grace, that we don't have to earn some meritorious uh, means of of being a, a, approved in the the sight of God. But also know that God doesn't change. God remains the same. And he will not be mocked. And he absolutely does, I believe, require us to worship him in, in the way that he sets forth. Paul goes on to explain that God's judgment upon us This is really the the, the good news of of this idea of being judged. Paul goes on to explain that that God's judgment upon us, it's a means of discipline. It it isn't actual judgment, it's it's discipline. In order to keep us, it says right there in the text, from being condemned along with the world. So it's an act of love. It, it, It is an act of discipline from our Father. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says this, that the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So understand something. Here's, here's what I think that, that means. When, when we come together for the Lord's Supper, we, we need to, to see it, as I've said, certainly as a memorial. And we should worship Christ. It should stir up our affections to give to honor and praise to our Savior because of what He has done. But we also need to see this as a, a spiritual participation or, or fellowship with Jesus. That that God is still at work in the sacrament. That, that he brings discipline or, or judgment, if you will, upon those who take it in an unworthy manner. And I think that is, understand, I don't think I know based on what it says here. That is for our good, church. That is for our good. Well, why, why would that be good? When we come to the Lord's table, we, we are to take it in, in, in a humble and happy manner, I believe. Because in it, we know that God will, will bless us as as we commune with his son. And, and I want to take a little bit of, of extra time here to, to say this part really clearly. I want, I want us to see in what I just said, I want us to see how the Lord's Supper is a means of grace for us. Now, some might get a little uneasy when you hear a statement like that because by means of grace like that it's salvific in nature and i don't believe that the supper is salvific i i I don't believe it in the way that roman catholics would believe that it is it is a means of grace and salvation but here's here's what i do mean the the lord's supper it, it conveys grace as it communicates the truth of the gospel and is received in us by faith. And I'm going to say that again. The the Lord's Supper, it conveys grace as it communicates the truth of the gospel and is received by faith in us. So understand that that the bread and, and the cup themselves, they are not literal means of grace. There isn't anything salvific in them Simply drinking of the cup and eating of the bread doesn't bring God's blessing on anyone. Rather, grace is conveyed through the gospel message presented by the elements on the table. And then when we receive them by faith, we receive them believing that Christ did do these things. That these things that he said were true that he is our savior, that our, our salvation is in him and him alone, that he now sits at the right hand of God in all power and authority. The things that you hear from the front time and time again, I believe all of those things are declared in communion. And in that regard, I believe that they, they serve as a means of grace. And before I close out and, and we observe communion, I'm, I'm going to get really specific and tell you what I think that looks like for us, fresh water. Another quote from the Baptist Confession that I shared with you says this, that worthy recipients, partakers of the communion, worthy recipients who outwardly partake of the visible elements in this ordinance... Also, by faith, inwardly receive and feed on Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. That's, that's the means of grace that I'm talking about. How it is, it is being declared in the supper. They do so really and truly, yet not physically and bodily, but spiritually. The body and blood of Christ are not present bodily or physically in the ordinance, but spiritually to the faith of believers, just as the elements themselves are present to their outward senses. So, so when we take it, the thing I want us to do, church, is I want us to, I want us to approach the table in a worthy manner. I want us to, to take time in, in prayer, offering our thanks to God, confessing our sins if need be so that we can come with others in mind to do this thing as a a corporate practice, remembering who Christ was and is, but also declaring who he still is and what he is still doing in and through us and the future glory that we have. So how it practically serves as a means of grace. I think this is both on Very much an an individual basis, but also on a corporate basis, if you will, as a whole body, right? Because that's what Paul, uh, that's how he's addressing the church at Corinth. He's talking to them as a whole body. But also we, we do dilute this down to apply just to us individually. So here's some practical ways I think it serves as a means of grace. It, it should, I hope and pray, it should force us to look at any unconfessed, unrepentant, hidden, ongoing sin that takes place in our life. right? Because I believe based on what Paul says, if if you don't do that and you come and partake, then you're inviting judgment and discipline onto you by God. I don't know what that looks like, and quite frankly, I would, I would almost go as far as to say every time that we, we do that very thing I just described and take communion and we don't fall down dead is, is a means of grace by God that, that he hasn't enacted his judgment upon us. But I know that's, that's, that's an overstatement, but I want us to, to feel that as we come and partake of, of the supper to confess sin, to, to have repentant hearts, to, to root out the sin that's in our lives. All right, whatever that idol is that, that, that JT talked about last Sunday, that, that, that idol that's in your life, if there is one, cut it out. Root it out. Do everything you can to remove it from your body. Another practical way that it serves as a means of grace is if we are harboring grudges towards anyone, family friends someone that you haven't spoken to in years if you have a divisive spirit if if you just in in much of what you say and do just tends to lean towards causing divisiveness or disunity church if if, if we if we take part in gossip and slander if we have conversations about people when they're not around, that we wouldn't have if they were. And that's not just people. That's certainly people in your own church body, but not only. If we avoid reconciliation with one another, if we withhold forgiveness from someone who wronged us years ago, and the list goes on and on and on. Understand that we should take this very seriously. And in, in, in doing so, it's, it's doing a couple of things. We are worshiping Christ. We are celebrating Jesus for all that he has done. We are declaring his goodness. We are we are giving him adoration and thanks and we are remembering all of it. But it also it should point us both to, to look inward presently and in the future. Like we, we should we should do an inventory in our own lives in that moment so that we can come and partake of it in in what Paul says is a worthy manner, but then also declare the future glories that we have ahead of us. To look on with anticipation of all that we know is true because of God's word that Christ is doing in our lives. So I'll end with this. Matthew chapter five, verse 23 and, and 24 says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Church, I don't want you to misunderstand me in, in, in thinking that I'm up here telling you that we have all of these problems in our church. That's, that's not at all what I'm saying. This series, I believe, I think I can say is really its intent, as I've already already stressed, is, is for us to to do everything that we can that we have within our ability as as the body and bride of Christ to come together, to serve one another, to love one another, to edify one another, to, to spur one another on to good things, to prop each other up when we're weak and we're failing, or we stumble and we fall, or we're hurt and we're broken. You all know I've experienced that personally from this church. Just in the times that I have been at an entire loss, I have clung to the body of believers that I have in Freshwater Church. And so I don't say it enough, but understand, I love you. I love this body. I believe in my core, in this body. But I want us to be one. I want us to have unity in all things under the banner of Christ in the truth of his word. So I'm not saying we we don't have that. I'm just saying, again, as we strive to to be this very healthy body where we have hands and we have feet and eyes and mouths and noses and all of these things that serve their own purpose and, and work themselves out in their own ways. Praise God for that, that we have that. But our body, our own personal bodies, they, it works in unison. It, it, it works in cooperation with the other parts of the body. And observing communion in, in the way that, that I've, I've laid out for us, to, that, that, that Paul has laid out for us in, in God's word, I think serves as, as a continual reminder for us to, to be doing that work. So I'm going to invite uh, the musicians to come up and, and begin to play. Uh, and I'm not going to go through my, my normal um, talk, that, that, if, if you will, that, that I give uh, as we partake of communion because the scriptures that I read are the scriptures that we've already read. And the emphasis that I put on the elements, I've already put on the elements. It's the body that was broken for us. It's the blood that was shed for us for the remission of our sins because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enemies of God. So now as we come, as I've said, is, is a sacred time for us as believers who have put our faith and hope in Christ. The death and resurrection of our Savior. So, so if you're here And we always do this. If you're not a believer, this isn't to call you out, to embarrass you. I would ask you to abstain from coming and taking of the the elements, observing communion today. Because this is something for the body of Christ, his bride, those who profess faith in Jesus as Lord and Lord alone. So if that isn't you, then I would respectfully ask you not to come. And not only that, I, I would encourage those of us who, who are believers to, to take the time, and I mean really take time, to examine your own hearts so that we can come and we can, we can partake of the supper in a, in a worthy manner. Whatever that looks like for you, whatever that means, if there's someone that, that you need to reconcile with, if, if, if there is unrepentant sin in your life that needs to be put to death, then, then give that to Christ now, before you come. Repent of your sin. But if you can't do that for whatever reason, if if if, if there's an individual that you need to reconcile with that isn't here, whoever that may be, then then Or for whatever reason, I just ask you to also refrain uh, or abstain from coming and observing communion today and just go to God right where you are and and just spend time speaking to him and confessing those things to him and asking for for his grace to to continue to do that work in your heart. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to ask you when, when you're ready to come up and gather the elements You can take them back to your seats with your family, friends, those around you um, as you want to take it together, pray together. Um, As I say, if, if you have your children with you and you can explain these things to them or answer any questions that they have, I think that's a beautiful thing, do that. So let me pray and then when you're ready, I'm gonna ask you to come. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much. For your word, for the truth and goodness that it holds, I pray that we would believe these words that have been read here today and that by the work of your Holy Spirit, you would do the necessary work in our hearts, in our minds. Or that we would be so desirous to, to have unity with you, unity with one another, That we would be willing to to do the hard thing if needed just to be able to to come and, and and to partake of this very beautiful thing that that we we are instructed, but also we get to to take part in beautiful because it's it's such a memorial and a d and a declaration of what our Savior has done for us that God, we, we, we were sinful and lost and enemies of you, but you saw fit in your grace to send us your son to pardon our sins and to give us life in you, real, true life. Yes, everlasting, but also now. And so help us to live in that. And so in that, to to not only see communion as a memorial, but also as as a means of grace that spurs us on towards holiness and unity underneath the banner of Christ. We ask this all in his name for your glory and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.